Hello, I'm Tim Oates, Group Director of Assessment Research and Development at Cambridge Assessment, and I was Chair of the Expert Panel, reviewing the National Curriculum and providing evidence to the Secretary of State for the new National Curriculum in England. Today I'm going to talk about assessment associated with the new curriculum, and particularly this very challenging issue of assessment without levels. Firstly, I want to really look at this question, why have we got a new National Curriculum? Because this is important and it does affect the assessment as well. We've got a new curriculum because there were a whole series of problems building up in the way in which we were previously revising the National Curriculum. Now in 88, when the National Curriculum was first introduced in this country, it was overloaded, we knew that. It was too big and it was difficult to handle in schools and the assessment was a bit unwieldy. Sir Ron Deering did a really good review of the National Curriculum and in 1995 he produced a much more manageable version which genuinely made the National Curriculum more manageable in schools. In 1999 we had a revision to the National Curriculum and that improved it further, really focusing on key elements. The trouble was that in 2007 a quite problematic version of the National Curriculum was produced and I believe that took the National Curriculum in quite a, quite a difficult direction and it took it in a direction which is quite at odds with the evidence around the world as to what a high-quality curriculum should do. I can illustrate this. In 95 and 99, in Key Stage 3 in Science, we had some very rich conceptual content. So in chemistry, uh, when chemical reactions take place, mass is conserved, that was in the specification. It's a good statement. It's evidence-based. We know that 11-year-olds find this very challenging. And we know that from some evidence it's actually decaying in our 11-year-olds. It's quite problematic. If you don't understand that when chemical reactions take place, mass is conserved, you will struggle in terms of later aspects of science more generally. So it's fundamental. We know from research, we know from comparisons with other curricula, it's fundamental. That 99 specification was full of rich stuff. Conservation of mass, um, oxidation, thermal decomposition, the key things were in there. In 2007, much more generic specifications were produced. That, that previous statement I referred to became, in 2007, there are patterns in the chemical reactions between substances. Generic and vague. In fact, it is chemistry, so what on earth do you teach? Where's the idea of entitlement gone? Entitlement to the fundamentals that are critical for progression both in education and in life. So we wrote all sorts of things in Cambridge, 2007-2008, and these were picked up and used to drive the principles for the revision of the national curriculum. These principles drove revision of the national curriculum, taking it back in many ways to the trajectory of development that it previously was on, 88, 95, 99. 2007 stuck out as being rather odd. So we needed to get it back on track. What was not present in 95 and 99 was really sound transnational comparison, looking at the kind of content of national curricula in high-performing jurisdictions around the world. That was not a feature of the 99 revision. So in 2010, that's what we could put in place. A return to the really fundamental content of particular subjects, and also some international benchmarking. Look at the sequencing, look at, looking at when certain things are taught at a particular age or a particular stage across the world. 
In 88, when we first had our national curriculum, there were very few national curricula around the world. Now, there are many, many national curricula. Most, most countries have a statement of the fundamentals, either in the form of a curriculum or in the form of a list of standards. So that's what was done, a focus on the key things. The transnational comparative research also told us that we really should nail the fundamentals because it was important to do fewer things in greater depth, not to over-elaborate the national curriculum. All of those things are why we've got a new national curriculum. And now I want to turn to issues of assessment associated with that national curriculum. So the changes to the national curriculum were driven by a whole series of principles. And some of those principles related to the kind of assessment which really should be associated with a revised national curriculum which focuses on fewer things in greater depth and really nails the key content. And it's to that to which I want to now turn. High quality assessment is driven by a series of principles. Now, first of all, it should be reliable. So it should be consistent from one occasion to another or when the assessment is undertaken by different people. That makes it dependable, reliable. It should be valid. It should measure precisely what it claims to measure. And perhaps I'll illustrate that. In primary, if the focus is on a particular thing, like metamorphosis, the way in which you know, frogs change, they don't just get bigger, they actually change, then a child may have drawn some really nice drawings, but if those drawings do not really show that they understand metamorphosis, and, and credit is given for those drawings, then it's not a valid assessment. Because a, an assessment should measure precisely what it claims to measure. If the focus is metamorphosis, then credit should be given for an understanding of metamorphosis. That means the construct base should be really well grounded. You want to measure something consistent with the curriculum aims. So metamorphosis is a construct. So the construct base of assessment should be clear, and the national curriculum lays out a whole series of concepts, core knowledge, key principles and so on, which should be the focus of assessment. You can go through the national curriculum with a highlighter pen and highlight the key constructs. And I'll return to this idea of construct in just a moment. It really is an important idea to grasp. The consequential validity of any assessment is important. That is, the uses to which the assessment is put should be technically and ethically sound. So, if a minister wants to know what the underlying educational standards are, then traditionally what we've done is added up all the key stage two test results. Well, the problem is that teachers have particularly focused on these key stage two tests. Teacher, teachers have narrowly drilled kids in relationship to these tests, so they're not a good measure of underlying educational standards. You see, consequential validity is really important. The beneficial impact of the assessment should be good. By beneficial impact, I essentially mean that it should lead to a higher quantum of better learning. But the full range of effects of using the assessment should be beneficial. It shouldn't drive people towards narrowness. It should drive people towards deep, secure understanding. And then utility should also be considered. So, you know, at Cambridge we could make GCSEs incredibly reliable. I mean, they'd be 40, 40 hours long, and they'd be incredibly expensive. So you need to keep utility in mind. 
So these are fundamental principles, and I'll return to these. Okay, so I've run through the principles associated with high-quality assessment, both formative and summative. And now what I want to do is actually look at some of the problems in assessment in England. We've got really good research, which tells us that we've got underdeveloped formative assessment. So ongoing assessment which supports learning is underdeveloped in English classrooms. And we need to work on that. We've got assessment dominating curriculum thinking. So it's clear that in many primary schools, preparation for Key Stage 2 tests dominates the curriculum far too much. Likewise, in Key Stage 4, narrow preparation for GCSE can dominate the curriculum. In fact, if you ask teachers, you know, have you looked at the national curriculum in Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4, they tend to say, no, I haven't done it for ages because, of course, we teach GCSE and history and we're dominated by the specification for that particular qualification. So we really tend to think about assessment first in this country and we tend to think about curriculum second, and that is the wrong way around. Remember the assessment principles. If an assessment's valid, it has to focus on particular constructs. Those constructs are the things in the curriculum. We need to put curriculum first. Assessment should follow. There's been relentless transformation into high stakes. So whenever we introduce something and say, this is a really handy formative assessment, or this is going to be a good national assessment, there's relentless transformation into high stakes, and that can distort the curriculum and the kind of things that teachers focus upon. Now again, what we've got to focus on are key constructs. Those really key things that children need to understand if they're going to progress in the curriculum, in schools, and progress in life. So that means there's been a creep in function. Assessments are introduced for one purpose and quickly used for something else. An escalation of purposes is really quite problematic. It means that too many things are loaded onto assessment. I'm going to strip everything back and really show how assessment without levels can take us back to the fundamental purposes of education, really giving all children access to those things which are fundamental to their lives. In a way, they're private goods. They're the kind of things that individuals need. And if individuals have all these things, then they're public goods because they're available to society and to the economy. So there's a lot at stake here in getting assessment right. So I've talked about this idea of construct, which is a term which comes from the assessment community and sounds terribly technical, but really isn't. It's quite simple. Okay, why do we call it a construct? Well, I can't see, you know, with some kind of microscope, that a child has understood conservation of mass. What I can do is ask them some questions, and I can see what they're doing, and I can ask them to draw something. I can ask them to produce something, which gives me an idea of whether they understand conservation of mass. I can observe them on a series of occasions, and from that I construct the idea that they understand conservation of mass. Hmm. Okay, so the idea of construct is important, and it tells us that we need to observe somebody in order to make a judgment that they understand something. So we need to be clear about what the construct is. We understand that we construct an idea about somebody understanding it. That's quite helpful. What are constructs? I'll list a few. 
Multiplying two three-digit numbers together, that's a construct. And I can set some questions or some ask a series of questions of a child, ask them to do some things, which can give me an idea as to whether they understand it adequately and can do it in a range of settings. That they've got sufficiently deep understanding of it for me to move on to something else and then move back to it later to make sure it's reinforced. So multiplying two three-digit numbers together is a construct. Let's look at another construct in the national curriculum, reading a wide range of books for pleasure. Many people have said the new national curriculum, oh, terribly narrow, uh, all about knowledge. Well, actually, for the first time, the national curriculum emphasizes reading a wide range of books for pleasure. Great. And we know from research that's really important at the age of 11. We know that if children are struggling with reading in a wide range of settings, that will really impede their progress in this very complex thing we call secondary education. So reading a wide range of books for pleasure, very important. It's a construct. Now let's just look at it in a bit more detail. So let's look at reading a wide range of books for pleasure. They are reading. They're not just scanning texts. No, they're reading it and extracting meaning from it. They're reading a wide range. So a wide range of books, that's, that's a construct too. And they're books, they're not other things. And they're enjoying it. So that's a construct too. We put them all together and we get a very specific construct that we can assess. We can actually measure whether somebody is reading a wide range of books for pleasure. And you can see how important that is as a curriculum objective, and we can assess it. Now, once you understand the idea of construct, you can go through the revised national curriculum with a highlighter pen and, and highlight all these key things we call constructs. Now, they should be the focus of both our learning objectives and our assessment. And when we've done that, highlighted the key constructs, the key things which children should be acquiring, we know how we should drive our assessment using those principles of reliability, validity, sound construct base, and so on. Let's take this idea of validity and construct integrity and run it across levels as they've existed in the English system. When we, when we started the National Curriculum Review, uh, we looked in detail at, at whether levels actually are a sound form of assessment of key content in the National Curriculum. When we looked through the research, we found three contrasting coexisting models in assessment practice. And uh, that's never good, actually. And I'll run through why that's a problem. Now, firstly, levels are represented by the score on a compensation-based test. By that, I mean the Key Stage 2 test. I'll explain what compensation-based test means. You get level 3 on a Key Stage 2 test by achieving a certain number of marks. The thing is, you don't know where those marks have come from. They may have come from uh, items which are targeted on higher level content in the national curriculum. Or they may have come from marks which are deriving from the lower level targeted items. Now, a compensation-based test means that somebody who's getting all of their marks from you know, nailing the level three content can get the same score as somebody who's getting their marks from all over the place. The thing is, those learners really, in terms of what they know and can do, are very different, but they still get level three. 
Now this is a known problem of compensation-based tests, where you, you get a level or a grade from a particular number of marks. It's a traditional way of assessing, but it does have this inherent problem. Now we know that. Uh, that's the first model of, of the levels in the national curriculum. We know its limitations, and there we go. It's the key stage two test, fine. Now that, that would be okay, because we could uh, deal with that problem, as long as there weren't other coexisting models of how levels are derived existing in, in the system, and it's the coexistence of these different models which creates the problem. So that was the first model. The second model is best fit, uh, and that was present in the APP work, uh, the Assessing Pupil Progress model, and that's where teachers and pupils look at their work and say, okay, this, this, this fits the level three descriptor. Now the problem there is there may be some real weaknesses in a child's attainment, some key things that they haven't acquired in sufficient depth, and it gives a misleading impression that they're ready to move on. But it really is different to the score on a compensation-based test. The third model is threshold. You know, thank goodness this child is level four, otherwise our school's going to go into special measures. You know, they're just in the level. Now that's different from somebody getting level four and really understanding all of the content at a sufficient level to move on to level five. So this, this, this issue of coexisting models is a real problem in assessment theory and practice. And as assessment professionals, we, we were very, very concerned about this, this, these coexisting models in the system. It's a problem because it means that level three means something different, depending on what assessment you're using, and who's actually making that claim that this child is level three. That's bad in terms of those original principles I laid down. Level three needs to have construct integrity. You need to know what having level three means because you're going to do something as a result of that label. You're going to encourage the child to progress in certain ways. You're going to focus on what they can do and what they need to do in different ways. So it's a real problem that we had three contrasting coexisting models. It meant that levels displayed poor construct integrity, and that is bad. It meant there were contradictions between the school and the state, because the school was making a claim that this child was a particular level, and the state was concluding that the child was a particular level on the basis of something else. Mm, that's not good. We are secondary schools. Do they trust the results coming up from primary schools? And regrettably, almost universally, they said that they didn't. Now that's very bad because that's corrosive of the trust between secondary schools and primary schools. And if you want your education system to operate effectively, we know from the work of people like Bill Schmidt and Richard Prowatt, that you have to have trust between the institutions at different phases in your education system. And this was really corrosive of trust, and that's bad. The information about pupils that should flow around the system from assessment should be dependable. The claims that it makes should be clear, and this dependability, the fact that secondary schools can depend on the assessments produced by primary schools, is fundamental to the performance of our system. So again, this is really high stakes, there's a lot at stake. 
And then we thought about, well, what about communication with parents? How does the idea, your child's at level three, how does that communicate with a parent? And what we found is parents were saying, okay, they're level three. Um, obviously that's better than being level two and not as good at being level four, uh, but what does it mean in terms of what my child can understand and do? And of course what schools do in parental consultations is they say, your child's at level three, but then they have the real discussion. And the real discussion is about whether a child has understood the really fundamental things that they need to understand in order to progress and grow and develop. You see, what we really need to know is whether an a child has understood conservation of mass. They really need to understand that at that level of granularity. We looked at these sub-levels, level A, B, C, and found that there was real discrepancies in the way in which different schools and different people interpreted what these, these things mean. And again, if you have the same label floating around an education system, but meaning different things to different people, that is a very, very bad thing. We know from research that that's bad. So actually levels don't function to supply good communication with parents. And we know we've got to un unlock better home-school relationships in terms of learning. We know that from study of our own system, and we know that from study of other systems. So if we're going to unlock home learning, and it, if we're going to achieve a step change in performance, and we're going to have better equity in our education system, then we need to have assessment which informs parents as to the strengths and weaknesses of their children, and the things that the home, can be concentrated on the home, reading books of a particular kind, or doing these particular kind of calculations, which will really improve and support a child's learning. Parental understanding, very important. Levels, really not very good at supporting that. Now, in a way, that's all enough. I mean, that's a lot. Three contrasting coexisting models and some real problems. Regrettably, there's more. Levels encouraged undue pace, and the expectations of Ofsted were that there would be good pace moving children up the levels. Now, what we know is that our system often had to grapple with many, many things included in an overloaded national curriculum in 1988. And it encouraged pupils and, and, and teachers to move too swiftly through the content, rather than fewer things in greater depth, really ensuring deep, secure understanding of fewer key things. And as I've emphasized, that lies behind the revisions that, in, that were undertaken in 2010 of the new national curriculum. So focusing on key constructs, making sure that pace is not too fast and that children really do nail the content, we know that's fundamental to high-performing education systems and high equity in education. All children getting access to all of the national curriculum, not just some. So undue pace was something which was stimulated by relentless movement up the levels. Okay, trouble is, there's more. When Paul Black originally theorized the idea of these levels, in the TGAT report, the task group on assessment and testing, way back in the original formulation of the national curriculum, what he had in mind was a system which would encourage children not to compare themselves with other people. 
So he didn't want a system in which children were grade D, grade D, grade D, all the way through their education system. What he wanted was a system of levels so that all children would show progress. I've moved from level two to three, and that's good. I've moved. You know, I, I've learnt more things. I've, I've focused on things and I've developed. And, and, and there's very good research which says that that's important. So the idea of avoiding labelling was there in the original levels model. Trouble is, when you go out into schools, the labelling is rampant. And it's present amongst pupils too. I'm only level three. You see, this is dysfunctional in terms of learning. It's important that assessment supports good learning. Labelling, which encourages children to see themselves as poor learners, is highly dysfunctional. And levels have been appropriated, and Paul Blackfield's is too, just as I do. Levels had been appropriated, and their original benefit had been actually dispersed. What's happened is that levels were appropriated into a form of dysfunctional labelling. Now, frankly, I think that body of evidence you know, across so many things was utterly compelling in terms of removing levels from the system. This has terrified teachers because so many things, their data systems, uh, the way in which they see attainment has been heavily conditioned by the use of levels. What on earth do we do when levels are removed? Well, it's interesting. Singapore doesn't use levels and it's improved its education dramatically over the last two decades. Finland doesn't use levels and it dramatically improved its education system during the 1970s, 1980s and 1990s. Uh, Roxham, a school in England in Potter's Bar, quite challenged circumstances, has never used levels, not in its learning programmes or in reporting to parents about the real achievement of its children. And it's gone from special measures to repeated judgments of outstanding. So Singapore doesn't use levels, Finland doesn't, Roxham doesn't, and it's not that they're missing a trick. They have managed to dramatically improve the quality of education without using levels. So it is important. It could be that levels are a problem, not an asset in the system. So it was important that we made the recommendation to the Secretary of State to remove levels. And uh, I think it's a very good thing that the decision was taken to no longer have that as a statutory requirement in the system. I want to now deal with a few issues that are quite important to bear in mind when devising assessment arrangements which don't use levels. The first is the idea of progress. What we know is that levels encouraged a particular idea of progress which is rather inconsistent with what we know about learning. Real educational progress is uneven in pace. It's not always upwards. We know that in other high-performing jurisdictions, a spiral curriculum is important to revisit things, often in more demanding situations, revisiting them for the purposes of consolidation in order to encourage really deep, secure understanding. We know that levels could leave serious gaps and misconceptions because of this idea of best fit. So we need to focus on secure learning and key constructs, and you revisit them to make sure that children have understood, um, to spot those that have misconceptions or give further support to those who, where the teachers feel that the learning is insecure. Expansion can be as important as progression. 
And what I mean by that is that in many other systems, um, learners are, are not differentiated in the way in which we differentiate them in our own system. Actually, around the world, people are quite surprised at the model of differentiation which we have. They think it's, it's rather odd for each child, as we often say, each child to move at their own rate and, uh, and pace. Because this gives rise to a real problem in the classroom of management. A really differentiated curriculum is very, very hard to manage, monitoring the progress of each and every child. Models of progression elsewhere in the world are more that the, 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 those children who are really achieving something quickly, what they should do is apply the same construct in a more demanding range of settings, in more demanding material, or, or, or just different settings. So expansion, actually understanding the same thing but in a wider range of settings, uh, is, is, is a, one form of progress that we need to look at. Um, if you do keep the group together, then those that have rapidly grasped something can support those that are having problems. There's a very important film from Roxham where you can see this in action, um, with those that are, are, are readily understanding something, supporting those who are understanding something a little more slowly and, under, and, and supporting them very, very well. Actually, keeping the group together in this way unlocks social learning, where the more able learners are a learning resource to the less able learners. Of course, this idea of ability is also problematic. And let, let's actually look at that as well, because our, our model of ability in our system is rather peculiar. A child who understands A may not get B on a particular occasion, but it may be the other way around for another child, and it may be another way around for those two children when they're grappling with something else. You can never quite predict who's going to get what. And by getting, I mean having a, a, a good conceptual grasp of a particular idea or uh, getting a, a good, good grip on what it is that they should be doing in a particular setting. Now, Stickler and Stevenson's work is, is very enlightening. They, they did a lot of work on Asian settings and contrasted it with, with America. And I think some very interesting comparisons with England have emerged from it. I can illustrate it through a very, very simple thing. Stickler and Stevenson's work shows that if you put the question to an Asian teacher, why has that child not grasped that particular thing yet? The Asian teacher will say, because I haven't presented it to them in the right way yet. I haven't actually designed the right kind of learning setting or context so that it really unlocks their conceptual understanding. In England, if you say, why hasn't that child actually understood that yet? The response will be, because they're level three. You see, it's a different model of ability. It's, a, it's a, more a model of innate ability, rather than a model which says that all children can access the, all things in the curriculum, depending on how it's presented to them. And this is, again, a focus on the constructs, the key constructs, and on the way in which the curriculum can be adjusted and innovatively presented to ensure that all children get access to all elements. So this is really about high quality assessment and learning linked together. Now the next thing I want to talk about is production. And this sounds really, really odd. When I looked at the film from Roxham, I commented to the head, Dame Alison Peacock, goodness me, Alison, the workbooks in your school are really thick. She said, what are you talking about? So I said, no, have a look, take a look at the video. 
you get your children to produce a lot. Things that they write down, things that they draw, things that they say. Now this is important, and we know it's important from assessment theory and sound assessment research. Why is production important? Because if a child produces something, if they write something down or they say something, their learning becomes an object. They can look at it and think about how they are thinking and what they are learning. This encourages more learning and more effective learning. So what we want is rich questioning, both from the teacher to the child and from pupil to pupil. Rich questioning causes pupils to produce things, both written and said. This idea of production is really important. If a child produces something, something in writing, a statement, a drawing, whatever, it becomes an object to them. Okay, so it gives an insight into their mental life, what they're thinking, what they're learning. And if a child can see more readily what they're thinking, what they're learning, that it encourages better learning, more efficient learning, and more of it. So rich questioning, children of each other, teachers of children, this encourages much better learning. So including higher density assessment into learning can really unlock higher standards and better equity in our system. This idea of production is associated with the idea of externalizing thinking. Teachers can look at what children have said, either in writing or what they've actually said, and the insight that it gives into the way in which the child is thinking for the teacher allows teachers to better optimize the curriculum to individual children and to groups of children. So this idea of production is really, really important. The next idea is the idea of practice. So we know from work on mathematics around the world that our children do a lot less practice than other children in primary and in secondary. When we included the idea of more practice in the mathematics curriculum, it kind of produced an uproar amongst those with whom we consulted. And there was a real risk that it was going to be scratched out of the draft. But we looked at it really systematically. And the reason that people were concerned about it was that a lot of the practice of mathematics in our country is just dull repetition. And that's not the way that practice of particular mathematical techniques plays out in other systems around the world. If you look at Singapore textbooks, they do loads more practice, but that practice is really interesting and it varies systematically. So if children are doing a particular problem, say dividing fractions, then a whole range of increasingly demanding problems are there in the textbooks and in the learning materials. And they're interesting problems. They are, the kids like doing them. They do get pleasure out of doing them. It's not just dull, narrow repetition. So this idea of practice, doing the same thing, more things in greater depth, but doing it in a range of challenging contexts, I think is absolutely vital from the research evidence for our system. And again, our national curriculum, the way in which it's been revised, encourages that. Fewer things in greater depth, applied in a wider range of settings, done in such a way that the teacher can get an insight into the mental life of the child, and give them better support when misconceptions build up, or when they need to be presented with something in a new way, and in a new and challenging context, so that they develop deep understanding. So 
Production important, practice important. Uh, thoughtful production, rich questions, both in writing and put to the child during the learning, to enable the child to say things, do things, which give an insight into their mental life. Practice important, so that uh, the children can actually really be tackling the kind of context which will unlock understanding for them. Living in a levels-free world, is it possible? Well, Roxham does it, Finland and Singapore do it, and they're doing very, very well. There'll be a soft landing, I think, as youth decays, and people begin to see that the important thing is to focus on deep, secure learning of key constructs. And we need to think about these ideas of ability and progression. The way in which we devised the national curriculum in the, the revised specifications was to implement learning progressions. The reason that primary is now laid out on a year-by-year -year basis is not that it's a statutory requirement to teach this content year-on-year, because the statutory requirement is still attainment at the end of the key stage. No, we laid it out year by year to show the way in which children can progress through the conceptual content, the underlying learning progressions. And this is very well evidenced from research. So these are the things that are associated with a levels-free world. What kind of data do you get out of it? Well, I've been into schools which administer some really thoughtfully devised tests devised by the teachers because then they can set items, questions, which really link to the key constructs on which they've been focusing, which use the contexts which they've been using in their teaching, and then puts in some new and unusual contexts to check whether the children can generalise to new contexts. You know, these are devised by teachers. What kind of data do these things produce? Well, they produce marks and ticks and crosses where children have understood things and where they haven't. I went into one school and these tests were being administered in half term, so you could do something with results in the remaining half of the term to focus on the things that children were struggling with. And um, you found that the, the red X's were concentrated all on particular things, on particular ideas, and it led the teacher to think, hmm, we really need to focus on these things because they're not getting it. And it's loads of data. Levels produce loads of data. Well, these tests produce loads of data too. And you can slot them into management systems and you can monitor how individual children are doing, how groups of children are doing, and how the school is doing in terms of covering the content with security and confidence, focusing on the key constructs. See, it's possible to do this without levels. So what will we have now in the system? We've got a year-by-year -year statement of content in primary, We've got every school publishing its school curriculum and assessment scheme, levels no longer used. We have benchmarking tests at Key Stage 1, Maths and English. We've got a phonic screening check. We've got statutory tests at Key Stage 2. And we'll have Key Stage 2 tests reported against prior attainment measures, a baseline assessment. In Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4, we'll have non-modular GCSE, non-modular A-level and vocational qualifications. There's a lot of assessment, but we're not the most assessed system in the world. That's just not true when it's said. What we need to do is to make sure that all of the assessments which we have and the formative assessment in schools really focuses on these key constructs 
to do something that we've rather forgotten in all this world of, in all this thinking about threshold measures, to make sure that each and every child is able to understand all of the content of the national curriculum. What's my personal ideal? What do I see as highly desirable? What did I think was important in reviewing the national curriculum and its assessment? What I'd like to see is educationally focused assessment, potent and valid formative assessment, good diagnostic assessment, and there are commercial tests which can be drawn down by schools for this. I think we need higher density assessment, much more of it, but of the kind that I've been suggesting, probing assessments, probing questions in the classroom. Assessments put together by teachers, perhaps drawing down from the web, those questions which they think really match the constructs on which they've been focusing. High autonomy in selection and use of assessment. That's the assessment scheme that everybody's talking about that schools need to produce. Ideally, I'd like a big pull-down bank of items available from the web. So if a school's focusing on conservation of mass, There'll be a load of really high quality items which have been validated by assessment agencies which they can use in the classroom, which both enable them to understand whether the children are grasping that idea and produce some diagnostic information as to which children are struggling and what misconceptions they have. I'd like independent measurement of national standards and I think that's been a gap in our system for a long time. So some national sampling tests to give the state a good idea about how underlying educational standards are going up or down in key areas. I think we can switch to high equity and high attainment through the kind of attainment measures which I've been talking about. I think progress measures can be problematic because they take attention away from the importance of attainment of all children. Now in focusing on attainment and kind of relentlessly driving on attainment it sounds like a really really dull curriculum. But as we go around the world, we can find those systems, like Singapore, where there's high equity and high attainment and high enjoyment of the curriculum and of learning. I think we've got to avoid regression to thresholds. And personally, I think these more sophisticated uh, outcome measures in accountability are really going in the right direction. We want to avoid simple thresholds, like uh, five A star to C, because that has resulted in the grade D phenomenon you know, focusing on those, giving particular focus to those pupils uh, that are grade D and capable of getting a C. And we know that leads to a neglect of the most high attaining pupils in our system and the least attaining, those not able to reach upwards for a C. So the grade D phenomenon is really associated with thresholds and I think it's great that we've moved beyond this idea of only having threshold measures in the system. The concluding point is really the most important one. It's important for all teachers to grasp the, the principles, the ideas which lie behind high quality assessment. For all teachers to become in their own right assessment experts. To be able to select assessments, to be able to devise assessments which are linked to key constructs. I think the way that many schools are moving forward in rising to the challenge of assessment without levels is exactly right. They're using local collaborative mechanisms getting together in meetings to discuss how they're going to devise an assessment scheme, what it should look like, what good items they can devise, how they can devise them, how they can pull them in from existing assessments and from existing tests. This is going to lead to development and promote good practice 
This is going to lead to local collaboration in relationship to development of high quality assessment. Getting the right unit of collaboration, how many schools, how they should collaborate at a local level, is going to be really important. And I think a whole range of schools, including the schools around Cambridge with whom we're working, a whole range of schools are getting together in really exciting collaborative arrangements to devise what I see as highly effective approaches to developing good assessment without levels which meets the challenge of sound assessment approaches in respect to the new national curriculum. Thank you very much indeed.